This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and the work of civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week is another interview episode, uh, episode 57 indeed. Um, And we're speaking this week to Rose Longhurst, um, who is not a representative of the Edge Fund, as you will come to understand when we go into the podcast, but is here talking about her experience with the Edge Fund. Um, And to explain a bit more about that, the Edge Fund is uh, a participatory grant maker, so a foundation essentially, but one that is quite radical in its approach, not just in its approach to participation, but also in its own structure in that it's a sort of radically non-hierarchical organisation, so it doesn't really have any leaders as such, and therefore calling anybody its representative is problematic, as Rose was sort of keen to point out, but she does uh, has been heavily involved from the start with the Edge Fund and is sort of here talking about her experience of it. Um, and we talk more broadly about uh, kind of participatory approaches to grant making, uh, and the kind of broader question of how you democratise philanthropy and, and sort of overcome some of that inherent power imbalance there might be in the traditional relationship between donors and recipients or kind of grant makers and grantees, um, not just within Eng funds. So we talked sort of more broadly about the the enthusiasm that there is for participatory approaches at the moment. Um questioned a little bit about whether that is sort of more rhetoric at the moment than reality um rose kind of gave some thoughts on you know her her experience so far of engaging with more traditional grant makers through edge fund and sort of um what that experience had been like where there might be opportunities for more traditional foundations and grant makers to adopt some of the same principles when it comes to uh, participation and participatory grant making. Um, we also talked a little bit about what some of the, the kind of potential limitations to taking a participatory approach might be or what some of the challenges are of sort of genuinely making these kinds of approaches work in practice. Um, we also talked more specifically uh, about Edge Fund itself and its own structure, which is really interesting and certainly you know interesting to me, given that people who listen to the podcast will know I'm very interested in sort of questions of decentralization and kind of non-hierarchical approaches and, and what the sort of opportunities and challenges of those are, because Edge itself, as well as sort of taking a participatory democratizing approach to its grant making – takes a sort of fairly radical, uh, almost anarchic uh, or anarchistic approach to its own structuring. So it's uh, it's sort of grouping of individuals who work together as a network, but there there are no sort of leaders and everybody operates on a within a sort of flat structure. Uh, and, and Rose and I talked about what are the, some of the strengths and weaknesses of that kind of approach was and touched on some of the sort of you know known challenges around things like tyranny of structurelessness and, and other things, which was absolutely fascinating. Um, so without further ado, let's go into the interview and I will be back at the end for a little bit of housekeeping. Okay, great. So I'm here with Rose Longhurst. Hi, Rose. 
Hi. And Rose, while you wear a number of uh, different hats, um, all of them interesting in their own right, but you're here today specifically to talk about the Edge Fund, which is a fascinating organisation. But maybe the best starting point is if you can just sort of introduce yourself a little bit, say a bit about what the Edge Fund is, how it came about and, and what it does. Thanks. And uh, sorry, I forgot to ask, would you prefer to be called Rod or Rodri? Uh, Rod is fine. That's absolutely fine. Fantastic. Thanks, Rod. So for the past five years or so, I've worked with participatory grant makers. And participatory grant making is a form of philanthropic giving where decisions are made by those most affected by the decisions. And so the participatory grant makers are foundations where decisions about funding are made by the so-called beneficiaries of that funding. Uh, I've previously worked in civil society organisations since 2005, having previously been involved in various environmental and feminist groups while at university. And from the very offset, the way that social good work was funded seemed quite odd to me. I started out as a fundraiser and I for various charities, and I used to think, why is it that those who know so little about an issue are the ones who end up determining how it's addressed? And why do fundraisers have to play games to hide very necessary overhead costs or dress up what we need in order to meet the requirements of what funders think we need. And so an anecdote on this is when I was working as a fundraiser for an autistic society, we needed a minibus because taking groups of autistic children on public transport can be really tricky, but nobody likes to fund minibuses. There are very few foundations that will fund that. So instead of asking for funding for the minibus, we would have to carve the costs up into various projects that people would fund. So we had an arts project that had a budget line for transport, a sports project that had a budget line for transport, a project where we took kids out into nature, which had a budget line for transport, etc. And then by piecing all these small projects together, we were able to get the minibus. And even at the time, I was wondering, why should we have to do this? It seems so performative. But that was the norm. It was simply the way in which charities get funding. And then During my various civil society roles, I worked for a foundation, which also further made me question the system because I was quite uncomfortable with making decisions about issues that I knew quite little about. And I also worked at a network of civil society organisations where I developed policies around funding for big donors, so governments and multilaterals and foundations that support international development charities. Um, But throughout this entire process, I had this sort of nagging lingering doubt about the efficacy and equity of the system and I always felt there was so much emphasis for example on value for money but very little discussion about who determines that value in the first instance. Then in 2013 I became part of the Edge Fund and discovered what is now called participatory grant making. So the Edge Fund is an organisation that supports grassroots groups in the UK and Ireland and being part of this has really changed things for me because I saw how putting the decisions about funding into the hands of those affected by the decision can create real change, not only amongst the groups that are funded, but also amongst people like myself that donate to the Edge Fund. Uh, because at the Edge Fund, the people that you're that in the traditional charity structure are seen as being in deficit or in, in need, they're the ones articulating the vision for change and making decisions about how to how best to allocate the resources. And so for me, this was transformational. I finally had a framework, an alternative approach that articulated a way of doing things that seemed not just more just, but also more effective, because who best to know about the issues of inequality and injustice than people living them daily. And then in 2017, 
I was part of a group that launched Fund Action, which is a European fund and platform that has similar goals and processes to the Edge Fund, which and we've just had our, I think, I think our fifth major grant round. So when I'm talking about participatory grant making, the two organisations I'm most familiar with are Edge Fund and Fund Action. But I want to make it really clear that I'm not a spokesperson for either organisation. In fact, I'm quite unrepresentative of the membership of Edge Fund in particular. So my views are not necessarily shared by everyone in the community. And that's, I suppose, one of the points of participatory grant making, isn't it? That, you know, you have this diversity of, uh, of perspectives. And although I'm an active member of both organisations and I've been deeply involved in a lot of their work, anything I say is my personal take. It's not the something that Edge Fund or Fund Action has endorsed. And then finally, I wanted to note that I've just completed some academic research on participatory grant making as part of an Atlantic Fellowship in Social and Economic Equity at the London School of Economics, which I'll be drawing upon in this discussion. And I used my experiences with Edge Fund, Fund Action and other foundations to scrutinise the challenges and opportunities that participation in foundations offers. Great. And yeah, I think your, your sort of caveat about not speaking necessarily for those organisations as a spokesperson is the sort of caveat we're all going to have to get used to more in the future, as I think there will be more of these kinds of organisations where they don't necessarily have traditional leaders or, or spokespeople. So I think we can we can definitely be be comfortable with that. Um, perhaps you could sort of follow up on, on that just to say a bit about how the kind of participatory model within Edge Fund, uh, as an example, sort of works in practice? I mean, who are the the people or organisations that are coming to the fund or using the fund to, to highlight issues and to, to kind of attract funding? And who are they attracting funding from? How, do, how does the whole process work? Absolutely. So Edge Fund is a very unusual organisation, even amongst participatory grant makers. So I have uh, there were all sorts of diagrams and things to to show how we work. But in short, uh, Edge was born in 2012 and it was the result of conversations between donors and community activists who wanted to set up an alternative funding structure. Uh, so it was mostly guided by individuals involved in social justice campaigning or community work. So uh, around 50 people took part in a series of meetings to work out the aims, values and processes of the fund, which then launched in December 2012 and became a registered community benefit society in 2013. But that's not to say that once that process was designed, that it's, it stayed the same. I think we've had 10 funding rounds since then, and each of them have been different in response to uh, feedback or uh, evaluations of, of how the process has gone. And I got involved in the summer of 2013 and was part of the first facilitation group. So the facilitation group, the way that Edge works is that we have uh, two very part-time staff members who are drawn from the activist communities that we intend to serve and who do outreach, a lot of outreach. So they are actively going out there and supporting and encouraging people to apply for funding and we can talk a little bit later about how this overcomes some of the traditional barriers to, to funding uh, grassroots groups. Uh, and then they are supported with a by a facilitation group, which is a collective of uh, members who do a lot of this behind the scenes work. So EDGE is a membership organisation. We have about, I think, 120 plus members. And we aim for the membership to be representative of the communities that we intend to serve. So people uh, who are seeking asylum, for example, or uh, disability rights activists and others. And 
members guide the process of the whole of the whole fund. We also assess proposals, but only once people who are um, who are, are directly affected by the issue or have lived experience of the issue have assessed the proposal. So, for example, if we were to receive proposals from uh, disability rights activists, then it would be disabled people in the first instance that would review these proposals and score these proposals and add comments as to what they thought about the organisation or the approach. And then these proposals would be gathered and batched and sent out to the whole membership and all previous grantees as well. And then we would score the proposals and be guided by the community committees that are that the, uh, are made of the people that are represented, representative of the issues. So, for example, I knew very little about the disability rights movement before I joined Edge Fund. So it, when I was reading and reviewing the applications, I found it very helpful to be guided by disabled people. And then once the proposals are all scored, then the highest scoring proposals all come to a meeting where everybody shares a little bit about their work and it's a collective experience of learning and sharing and uh, building solidarity for one another's campaigns. And then everybody is guaranteed some funding at that. But at the end of the day, we all do a little bit of uh, voting using chickpeas to determine which of the 15 or so organisations will get the most funding. And so they will get £3,000 instead of £1,500. And so this is an exercise of including those who have also uh, contributed proposals or are seeking funding into the grant making process as well as ex grantees and members. So we don't have any board, we don't have a uh, any particular sort of hierarchy. Uh, we just have these these people that try and manage the process behind the scenes and make things happen, but the the decisions are made collective, collectively. And one of the reasons that Edge Fund was set up like this is that in a time of rising inequality, more funds are needed to support independent grassroots groups who are working to bring about change for a just and sustainable and equal world. And so if we want something like this, then we need to set up a, a community of solidarity rather than a community of generosity or beneficence or charity. And so it's an opportunity to develop a, a democratic and accountable way of sharing resources, as well as an opportunity to bring people from different backgrounds together. And now we're seen as a participatory grant maker. This wasn't necessarily a term that we, we used when we were established. We saw ourselves as democratising decisions. Uh, but the, the, the core of it is that decisions are made by those most affected by the issue. And then as a side, a side element of Edge Fund is that we'd also set up a, a group to support and influence other funders. And this is an area that I've been particularly active in. And so we try and support other foundations or donors to fund root cause work uh, rather than symptomatic uh, solutions. We, we want to look at the, the actual root causes of injustice and inequality, uh, funding grassroots groups, especially those that don't usually get funding and those that are led by people with lived experience of the issue and funding in more democratic ways. I mean, a lot more information can be found on our website, including there is a, a sort of flow diagram of how we get the proposals in and how they're scored and who reviews them and also the the sort of oversight and accountability of the of the fund but in in essence it's a membership organization where resources are pooled and then distributed with uh, collective decision making as particularly by those that are 
directly affected by the issue. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an absolutely fascinating model. And there's there's a lot in what you just said that I'd, I'd like to pick up on because it touches on loads of things uh, I'm really interested in. Um, I, actually, taking something you said to, towards the end there first, where you were talking about trying to influence others to focus on root causes rather than on sort of addressing symptoms. It, it does seem to me that this is, this is something in kind of current um, discourses about philanthropy that people are becoming more aware of and perhaps with within the context of something like the you know the climate crisis that we find ourselves facing that question of whether you can just kind of operate within existing systems and address symptoms one by one or whether actually you need to focus much more on kind of radical and transformative change seems to be something a lot of funders are are struggling with um i don't know if you saw the other day there was a news about the launch of this new climate emergency fund which um it just seemed interesting to me because it was big donors coming together but actually the model that they'd chosen to uh, employ sounded like it had elements that were similar to edge fund in that it was small donations to kind of individual activists or activist groups at varying stages of their their development in in very kind of overt recognition of some of these these challenges about addressing root causes and and the sort of democratic deficit you sometimes get in in philanthropy do, do you have any sense that 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 message about kind of addressing underlying causes as as opposed to symptoms and seeking transformative change is something that has filtered through to the world of foundations and funders over the the time that you've been working in this area oh i really hope so <laughs> um i think it's getting increasingly hard to justify the current traditional system or the system that we've been using today the the hegemony is being shaken right you know by many many things and i don't you'd have to live under a rock to not see that and obviously foundations tend to be quite insulated from a lot of a lot of the currents uh, in the political climate let's say because of a, a different accountability structure or lack of accountability structure. But I think the, the critiques about elites and their, how do I want to put this? I think that it's impossible to not be shaken by some of the, the disconnect between those who sit in positions of power and privilege and the the lives of uh, the majority of people, and obviously this is now the eye is now being turned on philanthropy, and I mean, it, essentially many existing models of philanthropy are not only the result of inequality; they actually serve to perpetuate it. Right, so they consolidate social and cultural capital for their benefactors, as well as taking funds out of democratic control and funneling them into the interest areas of the wealthy. So even if we leave aside the benefits, the issues around the benefits that are accrued by philanthropists, we still have the challenge that philanthropy is essentially plutocratic. It's a, an exercise of the personal preferences of the wealthy and one that has very real impact on the lives of others. And, you know, this, is, this isn't a new critique at all, but I think it's one that's gaining a lot of traction recently and perhaps due to some of the... the the current affairs and other issues that are happening um, all over the world. And I know that you've talked about um, Anger Adardis's book, um, what's it called? Uh, Winners Take All. Winners Take All, yes, on the podcast. And Rob, Rob Reich's Just Giving and David Callahan's The Givers too. 
these are all excellent books. And as an aside for anyone who enjoyed those, I would also recommend adding Jane Mayer's Dark Money and Lindsay McGoey's No Such Thing as a Free Gift and Dale Weslikoff's surprise to that list of, uh, of interesting journalism around the potential uh, the, the potential dangers of, of uh, philanthropic giving. But when we when we read Week and others, we see the critique that philanthropy is undemocratic and unaccountable. And they often posit that a more just approach would centre the voice of the affected community. Yet there doesn't seem to be any recognition of the fact that there are many foundations out there that were established to do just that, to distribute resources in a more uh, democratic and just way. So, for example, the Disability Rights Fund was established in 2008 and the Freedy Young Feminist Fund in 2011, Red Umbrella Fund in 2012. These are all participatory grant makers, so foundations that have been putting the decisions into the hands of those affected for, for years. And whether or not these organisations you know, are any kind of uh, solution or mitigating the concerns about democratic deficits in philanthropy. This requires a lot more investigation. But my sense is that they certainly do so in comparison to traditional forms of philanthropy. And I don't think it's a coincidence that these organisations tend to fund on right human rights, on advocacy, on campaigns to change norms to change narratives to change mindsets to change policies rather than funding the 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 symptoms of an unjust system such as you know i mean and, and I, I, I i'm not saying that we don't need things such as food banks and um, shelters but underlying that there is an unjust distribution of resources and and unless we address those that the symptoms, then we're not going to, uh, the problem, sorry, we're not going to ever address the symptoms. The symptoms are only going to get worse and worse. And I think that participatory grant makers, because they are working with people that are at the uh, at the margins, uh, that are usually mar marginalised by the current traditional uh, charity system, they are seeing that we need more transformation, transformational change. We can't just continue to do and fund and act in the same ways that we have done previously and hope that somehow the rising inequality that we're seeing will will disappear. So I, I think participatory grant making is interesting because the legitimacy for decision making stems not from wealth or other privileges, which it does in, in a lot of foundations or uh, charity structures, but legitimate decision makers are, and participatory grant makers are those that are most affected by the decision. So disabled peoples who are seeing the the, the uh, effects of austerity and, uh, and they're living it, they're living it day to day. And so they don't have time to, to talk about, it's so pressing for them to address the root causes of this and to address the, the sort of fundamental political structures that, and, and, uh, and systems that are upholding this injustice. So I think the time is ripe to talk about systemic crises, but I think we can't we can't just look to those who we have previously looked to to lead us out of the the people that benefit from the current system are not necessarily going to be the ones that lead us out of it and that, that challenge it. So I, I, in my research, for example, when I interviewed representatives from thirteen traditional and participatory foundations. 
one thing that I found particularly striking was around notions of accountability. So all of those who were involved in participatory grant making said that their accountability was to the movement uh, and nobody mentioned an unelected board. Whereas in traditional philanthropy, all those involved said their accountability flowed upwards to the board. And although some cited grantees as stakeholders, none of them saw a broader cause or an issue as the main driver. And I think that this is understandable, but it's also slightly um, uh, myopic or outdated. We, we've got so many big, vibrant movements and so, so much is changing right now that are that, that is questioning some of the taken for granted issues of our time the 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 things are changing and so if we don't also change within philanthropy it's we're just going to be completely irrelevant and illegitimate so and i'm not sure that it's possible to say that participatory grant making mitigates all these concerns about the structural injustices that are inherent in philanthropy and but we need more research to explore whether these intentions are, are realised in practice, this ethos it actually manifests. But I do think it's safe to say that by involving those most affected by the issues in decisions about their lives, we're at least acknowledging the inequity that's inherent in most philanthropic interactions. And in doing so, we're more likely to address or consider the, the root causes of issues rather than simply the symptoms uh, yeah, I'm really rambling. No, 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 it's no, it's all, it's all extremely interesting. And I think again, there's a lot to to pick up on there. I mean, I think, I think absolutely in terms of that question of whether participatory grant making is the answer to the you know the critiques about the the sort of anti democratic nature of philanthropy or the the fact that it might be difficult to use it as a tool to address fundamental structural inequality. I mean, no, it probably isn't the answer in and of itself, but it certainly feels like it's part of the answer. And there's a lot more to be to be done and um, i guess the one thing i was thinking as you were talking there is that you know there, there seem like there's various different ways in which we could go about democratizing philanthropy and one of them is you know, democratizing the way in which it's decided where grants are made and what the focus of of the activity is and that you know that's sort of core of most participatory grant making approaches is as you say putting the power in in the hands of those uh, who are going to be affected by by these decisions and it's really interesting to hear that actually you know one upshot of that might be that there is more of a focus on sort of addressing underlying root causes rather than symptoms because people themselves feel that that's more valuable I, i guess the other the other two bits where you could democratize philanthropy are democratizing the governance structure of philanthropic institutions themselves because you could still have a participatory approach but in quite an old-fashioned institution from what I could see and then also on the supply side democratizing the ability of donors to express express preferences and support causes so that you overcome some of that potential sort of plutocratic bias towards the wealthy on that side and all of those seem like different things and it seems like uh, Edge Fund certainly is doing uh, probably all of them to to some extent. Um, in terms of what you were saying about accountability there, it sort of struck me that the challenge for I- I- traditional institutions coming to this and who might want to sort of add a, an element of a participatory approach to what they're doing because they recognise all of these challenges around you know, democracy and inequality, do you think actually that's that's difficult if your accountability still remains to your board or to your funders and and actually one of the things you would have to do is sort of 
flip that on its head so that you did see at least part of your accountability to to your grantees and and is that quite a big cultural shift yes and there's many things in in what you just mentioned that I want to pick up on but one of the points that you made is that although edge is edge fund in the UK is doing and funding radical work we are at the very radical edge of participatory grant making field and so although and participatory grant making is inherited, inherently progressive in many ways because it's it's built on a foundation of trusting the people that are usually marginalised or seen as, as lacking in some way. There, there's still some very conservative foundations that use participatory grant making as distributing resources. But what I would say is that participatory grant making is both an ethos and a process. And I would really like to... Uh, recommend the grant craft guide so there's also a report that's part of that called deciding together and it offers a nice definition of participatory grant making which is participatory grant making seeds decision making power about funding including the strategy and criteria behind those decisions to the very communities that funders aim to serve so i think we need to be quite clear that to do participatory grant making or to do participation full stop is not about co-opting others in a predetermined agenda and we see this in the literature around participatory budgeting for example that in doing so you undermine and disenfranchise the the very communities that you intend to serve and so edges edge fund is very at the at the radical end of things and our politics are at the forefront of everything we do so we strive to organize ourselves around our values which is why we're non-hierarchical and we organize using deliberative democracy and anarchist principles and we only fund work that wouldn't get funding elsewhere so the root causes of injustice and equality and we in fact this is one of the reasons why we're not established as a charity but a community benefit society to ensure that we're able to fund work that actually challenges the status quo so Although we're quite unusual in many ways, the point I, I want to make here is that the values and principles and politics that underlie the way that we've organised ourselves, are, you can adopt those values and principles at different in different types of organisations, and it will it will turn out differently. And it will it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a radical non-hierarchical participatory grant maker. And so, I, I think. So if, uh, if your question was about how can how can traditional funders um, use find elements or aspects of this that they could uh, they could address, what I would say is that I'm very conscious that edge are outliers here, and very few organisations are going to be able to turn themselves into participatory grant makers that fund unregistered community groups. And to be honest, I don't think that everybody should. It's good to, good to have different types of funding modalities available, but. The ethos or mindset of participation and who is trusted and who is respected and who is valued should be changed in all foundations and all philanthropy. And there's no reason why more funders couldn't be more participatory. In fact, I would say that it's imperative right now if they want to justify their existence and their tax breaks, but that's another conversation. So um, I would suggest that folks look at the grant craft guide. The, the website, there's an ex, the excellent report deciding together. There's some little videos on there that has loads of different examples of different models that funders can learn from and different levels of participation. So creating an advisory board of people with lived experience, for example. 
And my number one advice here would be don't reinvent the wheel. Don't start trying to do this from scratch entirely on your own. Don't try and change absolutely everything all at once. You'll damage your relationships in your community and the reputation of participatory grant making in the process. And so I have a, a good example at the moment from the Lankelly Chase Foundation, who are really thoughtfully, they're reflecting on their practices in a really thoughtful way and have come to the conclusion that they wanted to do more participation and change the way that they're structured and the way they do their grant making. But they're conscious that experimenting on the communities that they they support isn't the most just or effective way of doing this. So instead, they've partnered with the Edge Fund and Fund Action to learn alongside us and see which elements of our work are relevant and replicable for them, and then learn from our mistakes and see what works before designing something for themselves. And this is an option that's available to all foundations. You can fund participatory grant makers, and there's lots of different types and models and themes that you can choose from. And in funding them, you can learn from their efforts. And, you know, this might mean that you think, okay, well, instead of transforming our our board, we will have particular groups of advisors that come in and support or seek out proposals for us. There's there's so many different aspects and elements of it. But I would say one thing I want to make clear is that you shouldn't reach out to your target community or to participatory grant makers for that matter and ask them to help you design a new process or change your process without acknowledging that you're asking them to contribute their time, their networks, their hard one learning. And the reason I mention this is because I, I call this intellectual cap- capital extractivism, foundations and their consultants drawing on the expertise of low-income people or people that have got lived experience of issues without compensation and without acknowledgement that they've they've got skills or capacity or expertise in this area that you are drawing on. And so if you're reaching out to just pick the brains of someone you really need to stop and have a bit of a think whether or not there's something in it for them otherwise it's just extractive and exploitative and I think I've gone off topic a bit but um, (laughs) I just wanted to say that there are lots of different ways that foundations can get involved in different different aspects of participation and I think learning from all the different models that are already out there and Seeing how it might be applied is, is a really, really good way of doing that. And, like, for example, Fund Action was a pooled fund and it was an experiment designed and uh, supported by activists and foundations. And now other foundations contribute to it to learn about participatory processes or to find new and unusual ways of funding their, their own issues. But I think. I think in, if you if you see it as an instrument from an instrumentalist approach, if you think, well, we need to do participation so that we can achieve our own objectives, then you're going to you're sort of failing before you've even started, because really what's important is the ethos or the mindset of power shifting and trusting different people. So going into it, you really need to have a, a fundamental a fundamental alignment or a fundamental belief in in the need for transformational change and uh, a willingness to um, open up your systems and processes to new forms of uh, power and decision making. And I think that point's really interesting. It goes into what what I was going to ask you, which is I think absolutely if you go if a funder went into this with an instrumentalist mindset, then I could see a situation in where the going was good. They might like participatory grant making because of the bit of it where they get 
better outcomes or sort of perceive better outcomes Mm. but there will always be instances where people spend money in ways that you yourself might not have done or in ways Mm. that actively turn out to be not effective or you know in some probably the worst case is not in their own self-interest and I guess if you're fully if you're genuinely committed to the idea of empowering people and putting trust in them then you have to work out so what your attitude to that is and what your sort of tolerance for for that kind of failure is because you're you know i suppose prioritizing the importance of democracy and participation or at least putting on a par with the outcomes that you yourself as a funder want to to achieve i mean have you seen that that question arise in the world of of participatory grant making sort of what 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 happens when things go wrong or when people people who are empowered to make decisions make bad decisions or ones that you could you know demonstrably show are actually not in their their best interests i i'm struggling with the question a little bit so uh, i guess my point is if there are if there are instances where i guess it's it's sort of pushing back or questioning the idea that people always have the best uh sort of solutions to their own problems it strikes me there are potentially situations in which actually because people and you know human behavior is dictated by lots of different things like unconscious bias and not really kind of um you know uh, being driven by the the right motivations necessarily we make choices that are actually aren't in our own best interest and the example i always think of is actually around something like public health well with with some issues around things like obesity or smoking if we'd left it up to to everyone to make their own decisions about these things we might have ended up uh people perpetuating behaviors that were actually unhealthy to them and damaged their their sort of long-term life expectancy but actually that's where you have to have a sort of higher authority coming in and imposing on people choices uh for their own good um and I just sort of wonder whether in the move towards participatory approaches, there are ever cases in which you think actually that needs to be balanced out with sometimes sort of a slightly less democratic approach of deciding for people what they need on a on a kind of collective basis. Yes, I mean, there's there's lots to say about this. I think the notion of... I, I imagine that there's probably a lot of people out there that would bristle at the thought of... Um, things being need to be imposed on people for their own good because obviously that's terribly paternalistic and that is also what the majority of the current charity industrial complex does Mm -hmm. and i would say that perhaps that's one of the reasons for deliberative democracy isn't it is to allow people to understand the issues and get involved in issues about things that affect them and this isn't to say that i don't believe in interventions or expertise beyond the expertise of people with lived experience of issues and I do think that people with lived experience should be seen as experts because they are experts in the inequality because they have to live it daily there's people that experience racism and discrimination know better than anyone what it's how racism and discrimination manifest right so we can see from the 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 models of, of disability uh, how how this has manifested, how this sort of paternalistic attitude has manifested of, uh, in in the actions and activities of uh, a lot of the big disability organisations versus those that use the social model and the, the the only model that's ever been developed by disabled people themselves. But to get back on track a bit more, to term, in terms of 
whether and how you might need to intervene in the processes somehow to to make sure that the uh, some of the challenges inherent in democratic processes are mitigated. I think there's different ways of doing that. So, for example, uh, Fem Fund in Poland, which is the first feminist fund uh, in in the country, first women's fund in the country, just launched. And one of the things that they did is that they have a group of advisors, so their sort of steering committee that helped set up the organisation. Uh, I think 20% of the, the funding is allocated to to them so that they can make sure that unfunded issues or issues that are less popular but are still important still get do get some funding. And so an example of this would be, I think it was perhaps people, women from the Roma community, there was uh, applications from the uh, women from the Roma community that weren't getting funded because people didn't really, the participatory approach the people that were participating didn't necessarily understand those issues as well. And so the advisory board added a couple of the, the women community proposals to the funding pot. So they got funding. And then when in doing so, when they have their reports and public publish some of, some of the outcomes and results and their grantees, people learned about these issues. And then that meant that the next time they had a funding round, they didn't have to insert these proposals in because people had been been made aware of the issues and people understood it's a political education tool right and so I don't think that the the challenge is that you can't trust people to make decisions about their own lives I think the challenge is is that people aren't given the opportunity to understand and engage with the issues that affect their own lives and that's that may sound over overly simplistic but I think what I find really tricky about this is why would we think that people in foundations or people that are traditional decision makers in any types of organization, but particularly in, within philanthropy, why are they somehow, uh, they're, they're not subject to these unconscious biases or these, um, yeah, they're, they're, what, what aspect of their education or life means that they then somehow know better about the issues than those affected and, that they are somehow more objective and lacking in implicit bias or, or whatever else. And I, I, I always find it quite tricky when people ask these kinds of questions, because I just think, well, if you compare it to the current model, what you're, what you're saying is, is that we can trust these people more. We can trust the wealthy more. We can trust the people that have got the privileges that societies have has offered them they are they are more trustworthy or they are more um, they they have a, a better expertise than those who are on the ground and trying to create change in their own, own communities and i'm not sure that's necessarily the case in fact obviously I'm, I'm not sure that's the case otherwise i wouldn't work in participatory grant makers right no and i think that's a Sorry, great i should be taking notes no, no i think that's, a, that's a it's a great answer and I, I should you know i should stress that i i throw it in you know the whole question partly is just a sort of devil's advocate thing i don't think i actually don't happen to believe people should have decisions imposed on them but it seems to me it's one of the challenges that does get sort of uh put up against ideas of sort of participatory democracy and, and grant making so i think your response there in terms of framing it in terms of actually you know you can trust people and, and they will make good decisions but actually you know maybe what they need is just uh the help to kind of understand the issues better and then armed with that information there's absolutely no reason to believe that they wouldn't make 
just as good decisions if not better decisions than as you say anybody who just happened to to work in a foundation or or another institution i think you know that's a very positive way of looking at it and i and i agree the health is uh, is actually quite an interesting example because we've just at fund action we've just been approached by a, an enormous foundation that has a public health program has just asked us to run a public health call via our participatory approach and we had to make it very very clear to them that you know we would we can we can run the call and we will have the proposals and we will assess them etc all through our our normal processes but at no point is the foundation able to overturn the decisions or try and influence the decisions or anything like that and one of the reasons that they're doing this is that they want to see whether or not it's possible for the participatory model to bring in new and unusual voices into the issues of public health. So they want to see whether people working on, uh, whether artists or people working on municipalism or people that are working on community housing or whatever else have a new and interesting and different ways of addressing public health as as a systemic change issue rather than the people that they're currently funding. And so although they obviously do believe that there's certain types of expertise and within health is a good example. You know, there are medical professionals and others that will know about things in different ways. They also acknowledge that you're only looking at the looking at the problem through a, a one lens of intervention, right? When you hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so if you're looking at, for example, environmental issues, but only thinking about the scientific side of things and they are definitely experts you know they understand these things but you're not looking at the expertise that exists already in communities and you're not looking at who is most directly affected by these issues of climate change or environmental issues then you're only looking at part of the equation and you're only you're privileging one particular type of expertise over another and that's not to say that all these expertise shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be included but we also need to acknowledge that there's a a justice issue here as well as an effectiveness issue here the more people that we have at the table and the more people who are impacted by the decision we have at the table the more voices and the the more likely we are to come together and find collective solutions yeah and that sounds like an absolutely fascinating example i'd love to sort of hear um more about how that that pans out um i'm aware we're i'm in danger of taking up too much of your time and, and running long so i just wanted to ask a, a a little bit sort of specifically about something you mentioned before that's probably unique or you know at least very very particular to edge fund which is less about its participatory model and more about the the decision of the organization itself to have a kind of radical non-hierarchical structure what what was the sort of additional rationale for for doing that when you probably could have done the participatory bit with a with a more kind of traditional hierarchical approach uh good question so firstly as mentioned you know we need to separate the the participatory grant making aspect from the radical non-hierarchical organized aspect because other organizations such as freaky young feminist fund or the red umbrella fund don't don't have this even though they are still radical uh, participatory grant makers but i think that the what what's shared the core ethos is the decentralized distributed power uh, is at the heart of the method. And so EDGE has taken this to a particular, into the way that we organise because of our politics, I suppose, and because of the organisations that we're funding. So the organisations that we fund are tend to be social movements that are often sort of uh, what might be considered to be leaderless, but obviously they have collective leadership or collaborative leadership. And 
so in these in these organizations and thus in edge no one personal group has particular power over the process or or, or over other people and so like all collective leadership this has strengths and for me one of them is particularly around who is viewed as a leader and why and what it means to have influence and power and and um leadership within an organization so you know especially in the uk i feel as though philanthropic actors and foundations and ngos and media or whoever else want to meet a man in a suit that they can shake hands with who has a big vision and they can speak about their shared history at oxbridge before moving on to their goals on around social impact whereas when you meet the social movements that we work with they're collectives of of often young people or people that are living on the on the margins of society who need compensation or time or a clear brief to to advocate for their issues in the same way so instead they organize outside of outside of these structures and i think that it would it would be strange for us to see our community as being these social movements these organizations like for example, Sisters Uncut or, or Disabled People Against the Cuts, and then organise ourselves in a traditional manner with you know, one represent one leader that is replicating those sort of models of centralised power and centralised. Uh, and yes, I'm, again, I'm starting to ramble again here, but I think that although it's difficult to have a, a, a radical non-hierarchical structure, it's, it's no more difficult than, it's, I suppose, the, the system that makes it difficult rather than something that's inherent to the way that we organise. And it's more aligned with our values. And if we're not practising what we're preaching, what's the point? And if we're not part of the community that we intend to serve, then we're outside of it, we're other. And that is exactly the reason that EDGE was set up was to be a solidarity and collective-based organization rather than a top-down organization. I think that that's a, f- a fascinating point about the the way in which your your own structuring along those those kind of lines and principles potentially puts you in a much stronger position when it comes to supporting organizations themselves that follow a sort of um, leaderless approach or a non-hierarchical approach because I, I do think one of the things that a lot of funders are going to have to uh, grapple with over the next few years if if they do increasingly want to fund movements and it does seem as though that's where a lot of the the most sort of transformative change is starting to happen whether traditional centralized hierarchical organizations are really geared up to do that and whether there are sort of dangers that actually in in that interaction something gets lost or they they inadvertently kind of skew the 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 mission of those those sort of networked organizations so so actually to hear you say that that your kind of decision to do that was partly driven by the desire to reflect the the communities and groups you're working with and that that helps you to be on a par with them i think is is absolutely fascinating and you mentioned that there are sort of you know challenges as well to it i mean what 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 are some of the the challenges you've you've found in in terms of it is it kind of practical things about coordination or or operational decision making or or is it something else absolutely so you've hit on some of the strengths there which is legitimacy within well just legitimacy and and having distributed power makes you collectively more stronger i think you have collective buy-in you're bringing in different perspectives and also 
one of the things is you're not necessarily burdening one person or having a particular view of leadership that I think is outdated. But as mentioned, I think that if you're in a system that rewards that particular view of leadership and people want to meet the spokesman, because it's usually a man, isn't it? Then it do, it makes it hard for us to, it makes it hard to exist and operate in in that realm because it's it's so unusual. But in terms of the the more practical issues, I do think that perhaps sometimes having a big boss is more efficient as in it's faster, but then it's just less just as well. And what's the point? I do think that a lot needs a lot more needs to be done in investing in internal processes for non-hierarchical or decentralized organizations and there's lots of books out there like samantha slate's going horizontal or reinventing organizations by frederick lacrue i think his name is and so if organizations in invest in their in their in their internal processes then you can overcome a lot of the practical challenges such as coordination such as relying on uh, people volunteering for things or such as uh, some of the practical challenges of the the sheer length of time it takes to get buy-in to get if you if you're only if you've got one person that is driving everything forward of course it's going to be faster because you, you don't have to have discussions you don't have to have this community awareness raising or consciousness raising or political education or whatever it is that you want to do to build that uh, that level of understanding and that education amongst ourselves but then what would be the point you know this was this is why I joined the edge fund because I could learn and I could understand things differently and I would have a new analysis and a new framework if in other if in other organizations they just have a very singular vision then that's then perhaps you might want to have a and in, you know rely on one particular individual to drive something forward but then for me that's not very values based that's not very transparent or or democratic um yes and i think one of the things that i would like to mention is that you need to have a power analysis right you can't avoid the power dynamics that are inherent in all different types of organizations but particularly in philanthropic interactions and this is something that is at least acknowledged when you have non-hierarchical distributed decision making because it has to be so the powers ex relations that exist in all interactions non-hierarchical or not are really hidden unless there's a shared language to talk about it unless you're building a values-based organization you and you have this collective discussion about what it means to not have exert power over one another and that doesn't mean it's not going to happen but at least you're having that conversation whereas I think in many of the organizations I've worked with there is no acknowledgement that there was some really really dis disturbing power dynamics there's no reflection on mistakes there's no accountability for poor decision making and there's therefore no learning and Whereas Edge Fund, Fund Action, and all the other social movements that I've been involved with, the constant reflection and iteration and transparency allows us to at least acknowledge and attempt to address these and learn from them. 
So an example would be recently the facilitation group at Fund Action was being renewed and the process went quite badly in part due to mistakes made by people such as myself. And this was clearly acknowledged in multiple meetings and I wrote a giant blog post, to call it a blog post is a, is a misnomer because it's very long. But if anyone wants to read it, it recognises the eight mistakes that we made and it made, makes promises to do better next time. And so although non-hierarchical organisation isn't perfect, at least we're aware of Joe Freeman and the tyranny of structurelessness. At least we're conscious about this and we try and guard against this and we try and learn from our mistakes. Whereas the very obvious elites or very obvious conflicts of interest that exist in normal organisations are not discussed. They're just seen as normal. So although non-hierarchical organisation isn't necessarily easy, I wouldn't say that normal organisations are easy either. And I think the benefits in terms of legitimacy, democracy and accountability alone are enormous. So, um, yeah, that was a long-winded answer no, to your I think, question. I think, no, that's a, I mean, it's a great, great summary of the, you know, some of the challenges, but also why they're not insurmountable. And actually, again, you need know, to make the point that, you know, the, the counterfactual is not, well, we all work in hierarchical organisations and that's perfect, so why do we need to bother? That You know, the whole point is that we're aware through all these discussions about, you know, democratic deficit and, and challenges around inequality that these sorts of institutional structures that we've used in these power dynamics have caused issues and continue to do so. I suppose in a lot of people's minds, when they look at the idea of sort of non-hierarchical organising, yes, it does bring challenges of its own, and the fact that they are unfamiliar challenges scares people, whereas at least, I suppose, the challenges we all know exist with hierarchical organisations are ones that we're we're familiar with. So I, I guess there's, there might be an element of sort of better the devil you know, but... But, you know, I, that's no reason for, for people not to, to engage with and experiment with, with these structures. And I'd be really interested to see how many more funders and sort of philanthropic organisations and civil society organisations do try and, you know, engage with, with non-hierarchical organising and, and explore how it, how it can be used. Because I think it sort of brings its own strengths to the party. And it's interesting that you would say better the devil you know, because I suppose this was one of the things that created a bit of cognitive dissonance in my mind in my career in that all the charities and formal non-profit organizations that I worked in did take a very hierarchical approach to organizing but then outside of my day job in the sort of environmental or feminist groups and others that I was working with we would we would take collective decision making and so the organizations that edge fund funds in particular but also fund action the ones that we're part of and the ones that we're supporting and the ones that we want to, who's, who we see as being very values-led are non-hierarchical. So then when we come across these very top-down, very traditional structures, that becomes a surprise to us because, yeah, the better the devil you know, well, we know that collective decision-making improves by and in the long run. So... And I don't think that the two can't coexist together. You know, we have some very, very traditional foundations that are run in, in very hierarchical ways that are doing really incredible stuff by working with the participatory grant makers, such as the, the public health funder that I mentioned earlier. So I think there is things that we can learn from one another. But exactly as you say, it's what you are more or less familiar with 
and you tend to pick holes in, in the thing that doesn't feel as familiar I suppose and I mean your point there just about you know interaction between the the two different approaches and hopefully finding what the strengths of both are so that um, you know, in the future, you can kind of harness both of them. It seems like a very optimistic <laughs> point to, point on which to to finish. So, um, I just wanted to say, you know, thanks so much for for coming on the podcast. It's been a, a you know really great to chat about um you know issues that I think are absolutely fascinating. Um, so is is there anything you just like to sort of flag up for people before we go about work that you're involved with or things you know where people can find you? Absolutely. So. Um, in terms of understanding a little bit more about participatory grant making, as I mentioned, I would recommend looking into the uh, Grant Craft Guide to Participatory Grant Making. And then there's a group of us that have formed. So over the previous years, we've had a, a kind of peer support network, which is a collective of participatory grant makers that meet monthly. And now we're turning that into something something more. So the participatory grant making collective will become a resource or a support for foundations and others that want to to do this work in more serious and structured ways so if anybody's interested in hearing from this collective which involves participatory grant makers that were instrumental in setting up the disability rights fund through the young feminist fund the um, wikimedia foundation the red umbrella fund and uhai which is the lgbt fund in east africa please do get in touch with me you can find out more about edge fund from our website and you can find out about more about fund action from our website but also please do get in touch with me either via twitter or um, via email and i yes i'd be well i'd welcome any sort of thoughts or questions or support for this kind of work great and i'll, I'll put links to all of the the relevant things in the show notes so people can, can find the information there about the the stuff you've mentioned um so it just remains to say thanks ever so much for for coming on and um you know perhaps i'll be able to, to twist your arm to come back at some point in the future and see how uh, all this stuff has progressed fantastic absolutely thank you okay great well thanks again to rose for coming on the podcast as you uh, can tell uh, i found it an absolutely fascinating conversation and i uh, definitely recommend that anybody who's interested sort of check out the work um of edge fund and sort of find out a bit more about participatory grant making um if you're interested uh in some of the things we're talking about i'll put links in the show notes as well uh more broadly if you're interested in these kinds of topics check out the giving thought pages at the CAF website uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy if you want stuff more about sort of books and things about philanthropy. Um, if you've got ideas for things we could talk about on the podcast or people I could interview, drop me a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Um, other than that, like, subscribe, give us a nice review wherever you listen to your podcasts because that always helps. And other than that, we'll see you next time. Okay, bye. Bye.